Hi, everyone. So glad you're sharing part of your summer with us. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm part of the teaching team, and we've been looking at the judges and talking about them that God had so graciously sent Israel. And today we're going to be looking at Samson. He's the 12th and final judge in the book of Judges. And he served for 20 years as judge. And there's actually more pages devoted to Samson in the book of Judges than any other character. But what a character. I mean, he was pretty amazing and different. Selfish, sensual, strong, boisterous, bad-tempered. At the same time, he's the judge of Israel, a Nazarite, the conqueror of the Philistines. He's very confusing. He's sort of a cross between James Bond and the Incredible Hulk. That's what we think about. Samson's story may be the least preached, but the best known story in the Bible. Right off the bat, we learn something. We learn that God uses broken people. That's a great thing because we are broken people and he can still use us. But studying Samson can also make us a little bit uncomfortable because it brings to light a problem that you and I have. It brings to light that he has issues that we have. And here's the issue. Until we go to be with Jesus, there is a battle going on inside of us. It is the battle between the spirit and the flesh. It was a battle that even the Apostle Paul experienced. We can read him talking about it on your verse sheet in Romans 7. Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but that sin that dwells within me. Look what he said in Galatians 5. Paul said, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. When we come to Christ, he immediately begins to sanctify us. He begins to mature us and grow us so we won't be living in the flesh. But our sinful nature does not just suddenly disappear at the moment of our salvation. We always have the potential to walk in the flesh. I often think of my friend who had a daughter and uh, what she said to her when she was a little girl. Remember when we all ask children, what do you want to be when you grow up? I can remember asking my son, Tyler, when he was a little guy, what do you want to be when you grow up, Tyler? And he said, a hamburger. Now, that was pretty uh, weird to me, and I worried about it until when he was grown. He said, well, you asked me what I wanted to be, not what I wanted to do. And I like hamburgers, and I thought if I can't be a little boy, maybe I could be a hamburger. My friend asked her little girl, what do you want to do when you grow up? And what do you want to be? And she said very confidently, I want to be the boss of the world. 
I thought that is a good definition for living in the flesh. Wanting to be the boss of the world, getting to do life my way, and expecting everybody else to let me do what I want to do. Once we're Christians, our life doesn't belong to us anymore. We were bought with a price, and God has wonderful plans for us. God had wonderful plans for Samson as well. Israel was in a bad place because of their sin and their disobedience to God. Because of that, God had allowed the Philistines to be dominating and ruling over Israel. Israel had lots of enemies over the years. We've been looking at some of them, but nobody was as much a thorn in the flesh as the people of Philistia and the nation of the Philistines. They ruled over Israel for 40 years, always posing a major threat until the time of David. And the Jews seemed to just sort of accept the domination of the Philistines. They didn't resist much. That was a big problem because slowly they were becoming so comfortable with the Philistines ruling over them that they began to accept it and slip into the spiritual complacency and get comfortable, the flesh, over the spirit. They were in danger, really, Israel was, of becoming just one more pagan nation in Canaan. We've learned from judges that God allowed that kind of rulership from other nations so that the people would repent and turn to God and he could bring salvation. But in this case, it's different. In this time in history, Israel had not turned back to God. They had not asked for deliverance. They had not repented. Instead, we would find them worshiping the gods of the Philistines, worshiping Dagon and the other gods. But God is not limited by the faithlessness of his people. He initiates redemption himself in the Israelites' lives and in our lives. So even though the influence of the Philistines went on year after year, God in his grace planned on using Samson to do something about it. It would be a glorious opportunity for Samson and so he had a glorious birth announcement, even before he was born. So look at Judges 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren, you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful, drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean. You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me. His appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask where he was from, and he didn't tell me his name. After Samson was born, if you got a shower invite in the email, it would say this, what? 
Come celebrate with Noah and his wife who is barren. Who? A Nazarite baby has been born. How? Announced by a man of God. Why? To begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Dress, robes, that's all they had. Later, Manoah and his wife would realize this man of God who announced Samson's coming was much more than a man, that he was God, that he was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Here's how they knew. After Manoah's wife told him this story, Manoah prayed to God and said, hey, you know, come, come send that man again. I need some clarity. I have some questions for him. And God did that. Manoah's wife was sitting in a field one day, and out of the blue, she looked up, and there was that man of God again. And so the couple got together with him and offered a burnt offering to God. And while the flames were going to heaven, all at once the man of God went up into the flames to heaven with him. This was a divine moment showing that God was accepting their sacrifice. But it was also a terrifying moment because it says that Manoah and his wife fell on their faces to the ground. And then after some time went by, Manoah turned to look at his wife and said, we're going to die. We just saw God. Now his wife was more practical. She turned back to Manoah and said, no, no, he accepted our sacrifice and he told us we're having a child, so we will not die. Samson's birth was really a miraculous birth, and it was ordained by God to save Israel from their enemy, the Philistines. God wanted Samson to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. The word Nazarite means separated or consecrated. They were to drink no wine, cut not their hair, do not touch any dead body in devotion to God. But Samson's Nazarite calling was very unique. It was very different. Nazarite vows were for a limited period of time, but Samson was to stay consecrated to God his entire life. It was also unique that God chose this for Samson even while he was in the womb um, because normally men and women chose for themselves if they were going to partake in the Nazarite vow. And then it's pretty interesting, Samson's mom participate in part of the Nazarite vow so that even before Samson's birth, no wine or anything unclean came near Samson. Let's look at verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manoth, Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. So Samson was born as the Lord promised, and his name meant sunny. Sunny, maybe because he was blessed by God even before his birth. One day, it says, the spirit began to stir Samson, and that means it began to enable him to fulfill his calling against the Philistines and to deliver Israel. The spirit of the Lord, we see in these verses, would become the source of Samson's strength. You know, it's so easy for us. We've heard those stories. We've sung those songs. We've seen those pictures to start to think, well, Samson's strength was all in his hair. It was always in the spirit of God. 
And remember that God's spirit moved differently in the Old Testament. It would rest on people that he chose, but it could also, he could also take his spirit away when he wanted to, and we're going to see that in Samson. So Samson's leadership as judge was not like the other judges, where they were forming armies and conquering nations. Instead, Samson would be this lone champion for the cause of his people. But if you noticed in verse 5, when the Lord was speaking to Manoah's wife, he said, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson would defeat and distract many Philistines, but he probably could have done more if he had not walked in the flesh. Samson's life is a story about God's faithfulness in spite of human weakness. Years later, it would be Samuel and David who would uh, overcome the Philistines, and they would finish the job Samson began. There's a good lesson for us here that there are blessings that await us when we walk in the Spirit. There are blessings that we missed out on when we choose to walk in the flesh. Before our birth, God chose us to walk each day in the power of his Spirit. This is our daily glorious opportunity. And when we walk with him well, we will serve him well. Look at Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, how? How do we do that in this fallen world? And I could do a bunch of points on it, but I think there are two Bible verses that tell us everything we need to know. Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then 1 John, we read this, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world's passing away along with all those desires. Whoever does the will of God, though, abides forever. And then in Ephesians, we kind of get our orders for living this life. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's our glorious opportunity. Boy, I would have loved to have had those verses already printed and they could have been hanging on Samson's wall somewhere. It might have made a difference in his life because we're going to see he often did focus on the things of the world, not the things of God, and he was losing the battle between his flesh and the spirit. So let's begin with his marriage. Let's look at Judges 14.1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. His father and mother said to him, Isn't there a woman among the daughters of your relatives or from our people? 
that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Sort of meaning she looks good to me. His father and mother didn't know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines because they were ruling over Israel. So Samson's exploits with the Philistines began with his desire for a Philistine woman. And since marriages were contracted by the parents, he demanded that his parents get this Philistine woman for his wife, sort of like he's the boss of the world. Get her for me. I want her. She looks good. Go get her now. Now, the reason Samson liked this woman was because of her outstanding character and her godliness. Not, no, not at all. He liked this woman because he saw her. Verse 2 tells us. Verse 3 also says she looked good to him. The end. Flesh over spirit right away. You know, God had prohibited his people, Israel, from marrying foreigners, and he had good reason for that. So they would stay true to the one true God. That's why Samson's parents are pleading with him to come up with a better idea. I think it probably broke their hearts when he told them that. You know, they were there. They were there when God said, my purpose for Samson is to begin to overcome the Philistines, not to marry the Philistines. And this is where we begin to see a pattern in Samson's life. If you look back at verse 4, you'll see this. Samson's fleshly purpose for his marriage, that was overruled by God for his own purposes about the Philistines and their denomination being weakened. We'll see that soon. Let's look at verse 5. This is on the way to the wedding. Samson and went down with his father and mother to Timnah. They came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, if you can imagine. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or his mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. That's another phrase, meaning she looked good to him. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion. And honey, he scraped it out into his hands, went on eating as he went, came to his father and mother and gave to them, and they ate. But he didn't tell them he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father and mother went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. You know, my grandson, Miles, just turned one. He's starting to say a few words. One of his very first phrases was, uh-oh, which is because we say it to him all the time because he's always throwing things, dropping things, losing things. After reading these verses we just read, I want to say, uh-oh, Samson, you just broke your Nazarite vow by touching something that is dead, by eating the honey from inside the dead lion. And that's why he kept his mouth shut and didn't tell his parents what happened. So was Samson such a strong guy that it was easy for him to tear apart a lion? No. 
His strength came from the Spirit of God. We just read, it rushed upon him. I think of this as a powerful, instant impact in his life. It also seems, though, that Samson broke his Nazarite vow again at his seven-day wedding feast, the part about abstaining from drink and wine. Because the word feast in verse 10 is used to describe a party with a lot of drinking. And since Samson prepared the party, it seems a natural thing that he also would be a drinker. At the party, Samson posed a riddle to 30 of his guests. It's about the lion. And so there's sin attached even to this riddle. Because Samson was boasting and making light of an incident where he disobeyed God and broke his Nazarite vow. He promised 30 linen garments and changes of clothes for people guessing the riddle, the 30 men. These would have been really fine linens, really extravagant, embroidered, expensive dress. If his guests didn't get it, they were supposed to give Samson those same things. Okay, here's Samson's riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. I would never have guessed that that's about a lion and honey and his guests couldn't get it either. And so on the fourth day, they went to his wife and said, you better find out the answer to that riddle because they were afraid they were all going to be poor as they could be once they had enough money to buy 30 more pieces of clothing. You figure it out or, or we might kill you and your father and your household. So the wife begged and nagged Samson for the answer to that riddle. And on the seventh day of the feast, when he could take it no longer, he told her what the riddle meant. And she ran immediately to the 30 companions who were supposed to guess the riddle. So let's pick it up from there in chapter 14, verse 18. And the men of the city said to Samson on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not found out the riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson again. He went to Eshkelon, struck down 30 Philistine men of the town, took their spoil, gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Okay, so when his guest answered correctly, Samson sent knowing my wife ran and told you, and he calls her a heifer. How humiliating, meaning that she was stubborn. He publicly ridiculed her. Then he walked 23 miles to the Mediterranean Sea, killed 30 Philistines, got their clothes, walked the 23 miles back, gave the clothing to those who answered the riddle. God had overturned Samson's foolishness by the power of his spirit enabling Samson to overcome the Philistines. That was Samson's calling. But Samson also lost his brand new bride because of his anger and sin to his best man. I would call him his worst man, but that's who got his wife. Even though God can accomplish really good purposes from our poor choices, 
we still have to deal with consequences of our sins. Whatever the grace of God may do for us, it will not make a sin a right thing. Samson seemed to ignore the fact that the dance floor at his wedding was filled with pagan Philistines doing the Macarena. He ignored that he broke his Nazarite vow and made a riddle of it. He ignored he broke his vow again by drinking wine. He ignored that he deserted his new wife on the last night of their wedding and his sins caught up with him. Here's what we can take from that. You know, we can ignore our sins, but our sins will not ignore us. We will reap what we sow. You know, today, it's a good thing that we're sort of leaning as Christians. We're leaning into being transparent and confessing our sins more. That can be really good. That's biblical. Confession is needed. But we also need to use wisdom when we approach confession. It's not helpful to anyone when we share our sins in a way that doesn't really acknowledge the seriousness and the dangers of sin and the repentance that must go with it. Sometimes it's almost like we can make a riddle of it and we want everyone to join in the joke. The truth is when we humbly confess our sins, we do that so we won't repeat our sins. And we don't want to do it, sin anymore, because that would be ignoring the dangers of sin. And that means future heartaches in our lives. Look at Proverbs 13. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Okay, let's look at some more of Samson's battles with the Philistines. Um, at this point, though, we can see that Samson may have had this kind of common marriage at that time where the new bride lives with the parents and the husband can come and go and visit her. And so we see Samson one day getting up, getting a young goat and going to visit his wife at his father-in-law's. And when he gets there, he realizes that because he abandoned her, his father-in-law has given her away to his best man. So no goat for his wife at that point. Boy, Samson was mad. And he was angry at the Philistines. It was huge. He was going to retaliate. And they would be weakened, the Philistines, by these cycles of offense and retaliation that came upon Samson in his life. Look at 15, verse 4. This is in his anger. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. He turned them tail to tail, put a torch between each pair of tails, and when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards and some translations say even vineyards. In just a few moments, Samson destroyed three main crops of the Philistines, wheat and olives and grapes for wine. You know, the word fox here is also the same word for jackals, and jackals traveled in packs, so that's probably the animal that it would have been easier to net or catch that way to do this deed. 
In revenge of these deeds, the Philistines end up killing Samson's wife and her father. And so then in retaliation to that, Samson slaughters many more Philistines. And then he took himself away, two miles away to a town named Edom, and we could find him sitting by himself under a rock. And we want to say at this point, wouldn't it be neat if Israel was noticing some of these things and begin to wake up spiritually and recognize that the Philistines had been influencing them toward evil? Wouldn't it have been great if they recognized God is using our judge, Samson, to strengthen us and weaken our enemy? But instead, it made the Israelites mad. They were very willing to betray their judge, Samson, to maintain peace with the Philistines, and so 3,000 of them get together to go and tell Samson what they think. Look at verse 11 in chapter 15. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this you've done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done to them. And they said to him, we have come down here to bind you, to give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson said to them, well, swear to me that you will not be attacking me yourselves. They said to him, no, we're only going to bind you and give you into their hands. We're going to let them kill you. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. This is a noble moment for Samson. Here's why. He probably wants the Jews to swear they won't try to kill him so he won't shed any Jewish blood. He knows his people, they're God's people. So these 3,000 men of Judah pulled Samson bound toward the enemy. Probably hundreds of these uh, jubilant Philistines come running out of the woods. They're so excited when they see the men of Judah coming and they're pulling Samson tied up behind them. And let's see what happens in verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord again rushed upon him. The ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. He put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down 1,000 men. Okay, also that word heap there I found out is sort of a play on words because it can also mean donkey. So he would have been saying, with the jawbone of a donkey, donkeys upon donkeys I killed. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the bone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. That means the area they were in was later given the name Lehi, which means jawbone. The Philistines were no match for the power and spirit of God. God again had rushed upon Samson to continue to weaken the Philistines. 
How in the world, when we envision this, how in the world did Samson kill 1,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey? And I read in a few places where they said, well, it would have been a fresh, a fresh jawbone, so it wouldn't be brittle. And I'm still thinking, it's still hard to picture. Hey, there's only one answer. It was an act of God. That's what God did using his judge, Samson. As the Israelites ran for the woods, which I would think they would have done at this point as he was killing the Philistines, I bet they were looking over their shoulders. And we would hope that they recognized that's the Spirit of God on Samson. We would hope that they would recognize God still is our defender. And we would hope that they would go home and spread the news around. Following this amazing battle is another moment when we see Samson's faith. He recognized it was God who won this battle and overcame 1,000 enemies and also revived him. Look at verse 18. Afterwards, Samson was very thirsty. He called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. When he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was En-Hakor, is at Lehi to this day. You know Samson had to be exhausted. He's sitting on a dry and a hot ground, he needs water badly, and so he calls out to the one, the only one that he knows can do something about it and would care enough about him. He knows he's just a servant of a mighty and caring God. And again, God was gracious to Samson. He takes a hollow basin, he fills it into a spring of water for Samson. And the place was called En-Hakor, and that means spring of the caller. You know, there are so many unseen enemies in our fallen world as well. They surround us like Samson's enemies. They can easily tie us up emotionally, physically. They come in the forms of loss and rejection and abuse and sickness. We have the same spirit of God that would like to rush into our lives and help us in those situations so we don't have to fear. You know, God had a plan that overcame the Israelite and the Philistines' plans for Samson. And that's true in our lives as well. In dark times, we trust no power of man can prevent the purposes of God in our lives. And we read about that in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or the sword? No. In all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We see God's love for Samson in this picture. That's how he loves us. We will sit on lots of dry ground in our lives. We will be thirsty for relief. We might feel exhausted, 
But when we ask God to help us, knowing that he can and that he cares, he will fill those hollow places in our lives with his goodness. There is a spring of refreshment for the caller. That should be us. Let's move on from Samson's battles with the Philistine to his personal battles. Uh, Samson's physical strength was unmatched, except by his moral weaknesses. In fact, one day he traveled to Gaza, one of the most important Philistine cities. His lustful eyes again sat down and looked at a woman uh, who was a prostitute there. He went to visit her. The Philistines knew he was there, so they surrounded the gates of the city of Gaza, thinking, we're going to catch Samson this time. But Samson left at midnight, somehow evading all the Philistines, and then he ripped out the posts of the city gate, ripped out the gate itself, threw it on his back, and walked off. It was a way to mock the great security of the town of Gaza. And then his eyes became restless again, and he looked and saw a woman named Delilah. We've heard about her. She was another Philistine woman. Her name, Delilah, meant devotee, which means she may have been a temple prostitute, and Samson loved her. His flesh led him further down a path of destruction in the hands of wicked Delilah. So the rulers of the Philistines got together. There were probably five of them because there were five major cities in the um, nation of the Philistines. They had a proposition for Delilah. Chapter 16, verse 4. After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. See where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. We will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that no one could subdue you. Okay, it's pretty interesting to me how quickly Delilah is very ready to take this money. She did not wrestle with this proposition. She loved money a lot more than she loved Samson. Today's currency, this would have been thousands of dollars being offered Delilah. So she made three futile attempts to discover the source of Samson's strength. Each night, she would take some Philistines and hide them in her chamber and interrogate Samson. First attempt, she asked him, how can we find out the source of your strength? And he told her, well, if you tie me with seven fresh bowstrings, I'll be as weak as any man. So she did that. Then she yelled, hey, the Philistines are upon you. And he stood up and broke them off, just snapped those away. So her second attempt, and he tells her, well, new rope. If you bind me with a new rope, I'll be as weak as any man. He's really toying with her and doing his riddle thing. And so she says, okay, ties him with the new rope, says, hey, the Philistines are upon you, and the new rope just breaks off. Her third attempt was, he tells her, you can weave seven locks of my hair into the fabric on a loom, and then I will be weak. He's getting a little closer to the truth here. 
She tries that, and of course, he immediately takes those pins and fabrics out of his hair with no problem at all. So let's pick it up in verse 15. So she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times. You've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with the words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Who does this remind you of? I guess he didn't learn anything about telling secrets from his first wife. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor is never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw, he told her all his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come again. He's told me all his heart. They came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made Samson sleep on her knees and called a man who had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from sleep, and he said, I'll go out, as at other times, and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Here's the problem here. Samson forgot where his strength lay. Even Samson thought his power was in his hair. But his hair was just a sign of his vow to God. They were locks of dedication. That is not where his strength lay. Cutting off his locks of dedication would mean disobedience to his calling, to the vow that God had him be born into. By giving in to Delilah, Samson was showing she was more important to him than his vow to God, his calling from God. And that sin caused him to forfeit the presence of God. When Delilah became more important to Samson than God was, God removed his strength. The Philistines took him away, but not before taking his eyes out. I thought this was interesting. His eyes were often the source of his sin. And then I thought about it a little more and thought it was also the sin of the nation of Israel. Because in Judges we read, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's moral degeneracy. We can see here in Samson's story and in the nation of Israel that that always leads to some kind of bondage. As strong as Samson was, he didn't have the strength to walk away from temptation. His steps were directed by his flesh. Temptations are real. They are all around us. But God knows that. And so our strength to overcome temptation comes from that faithful spirit of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can endure, beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We use our eyes differently. We use them to look for a way of escape from temptation. If only Samson had done that while he still had eyes. Let's head to the Philistine temple where Samson is chained and he's grinding meal. He's doing grinding meal. That was a woman's work. They had him doing that to humiliate him. I wondered while he was doing that if at times he'd kind of run his hands through his hair and notice it was growing. And I wonder if it would remind him of the special calling God had given him. And I wonder if it was giving him the courage to approach God again. Let's see what happened. Verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoiced. They said, our God's given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, this ravager of our country who's killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they called to Samson. They said, call Samson so he can entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. He made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. The Philistines are giving their false god Dagon glory for delivering Samson into their hands. They rejoiced over this false god, a grain deity, for Samson's defeat. Only Samson was not yet defeated. They called him the ravager of their country because he disrupted the domination that they held over Israel. That is what the Lord called Samson to do. That is what Samson had done, only it was not done yet. So the Philistine temple would have had a long rectangular chamber with two major pillars supporting the roof. On the roof were the 3,000 mocking men and women looking down on Samson, who was in an outer court. In the middle of the temple stood a humbled Samson calling out to God in faith. He was broken, he was beaten, and he was blind. Look at that slide while I read what happened. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one side and his left on the other. And then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his entire life. When Samson cried out to God, 
God restored his strength and 3,000 Philistines died. Where is the Dagon God now? Where are the people, the followers of Dagon? Where is Dagon's temple? Samson's death brought a victory for Israel and a witness to the power of the real God. So like Deborah and Gideon, Samson's name is included in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. I mentioned earlier, Samson's story is about God's faithfulness in spite of man's weakness. And we can be glad about that because you and I will have times, like I mentioned, struggling in the battle between the spirit and the flesh. We will have times when Satan wants to blind us to the dangers of our sins. And like Samson, you and I will find ourselves in helpless and humble situations. And then we have a choice. We can just live in bondage to the enemy or we can live in victory. Like Samson, God will restore us when we call on him and he will strengthen us for his glory. Look at 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, our faith can also tear down really big obstacles that show themselves in our lives. So if God sent out a birth announcement for us when we were born, they would say this. What? The Almighty God invites you to celebrate. Who? A child of God has been born. How? Through God's grace. Why? To live for the Lord all the days of its life. How do we do that? We do that in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, how kind you are to us who fail and are weak and broken. How kind you are and how ready you are to restore us and use us. I pray we continually walk your path so that we can hold your name up high and you can receive the glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.